The theme of 2 Peter is warning scattered and suffering saints about false teachers and their teaching. In particular, these false teachers were guilty of antinomian Gnosticism, which was an ideology that reveled in lawlessness, revered secret knowledge of the cosmos, regarded the physical body as evil, and rejected biblical orthodoxy. Because false teachers are a present threat to us today, Peter has exhorted believers down through the ages to grow in godliness in chapter 1 of this epistle. Growing in godliness is the sure defense against falling prey to false teachers. Now from the divine side, we have been provided faith, grace, peace, everything about life and godliness, and precious, magnificent promises whereby we can grow. However, growth does not happen without determination and discipline. We must use the tools provided to us to grow. That is, the Old and the New Testament scriptures. And as we grow, we saw that we will exhibit moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. In chapter 2, Peter exhorted and provided us a warning, a judgment, and a profile of false teachers. False teachers promote destructive heresies, immorality, and impurity. They are driven by greed. And without a doubt, God will judge them and doom them to an eternity in the lake of fire. And we saw that God's judgment of false teachers is undeniable because he routinely judged the wicked throughout history. And so we must beware of false teachers. They are cunning and deceptive. And they will give the appearance of being saved. But instead, they are wolves in sheep's clothing. Now in chapter 3, Peter converges on a specific example of false teachers, which is a denial of Christ's return to judge the world. And because they reveled in lawlessness, because they pursued lustful desires, they denied any doctrine which would hold them accountable for their actions. In their mind, Christ does not return, and therefore there will be no judgment upon them. Therefore, as a shepherd, Peter urges his sheep to be mindful. To be mindful of the scriptures and to be mindful of the scoffers. And so as we approach 2 Peter chapter 3, we're going to see in verses 1 and 2 that we need to be mindful of the scriptures. Mindful of the scriptures. And then in verses 3 through 7, we're going to see that we need to be mindful of the scoffers. So let's begin in verses 1 and 2 in regards to being mindful of the scriptures. Verse 1, this is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. You see, because of false teaching, we must be mindful of the words of Scripture. Note that Peter begins by referring to his readers as beloved. The term beloved, agapetos, comes from the term agapao, which means to sacrificially seek the highest good of someone else with no expectation of anything in return. It's sacrificial love. But the Septuagint uses the term agapetas for Abraham's love for Isaac in Genesis 22.2. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. 
and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. In the New Testament, the term agapetos is used to describe the love that God the Father has for God the Son. Mark 1.11 A voice come out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. Mark 9.7 Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Hence the term agapetos denotes not only sacrificial love, but fatherly love. And by referring to his readers as beloved, Peter is expressing that they are the object of his sacrificial fatherly love. And it's out of such love, Peter says, that he writes a second letter to them. Now the term letter here, epistole, refers to a message or sermon addressed to a group of people. Peter wrote two sermons with the expressed purpose of stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. That verb stirring up means to spur someone to action. In other words, to stimulate. And what he desires to stimulate, the object of this stimulation, is our sincere mind. The word mind is the, refers to the center of one's thinking and understanding. Sincere means that which is pure or which has integrity. And he uses the term sincere to describe our ability to discern things logically and spiritually. Because we are apt to become spiritually lethargic, our spiritual fathers and mothers must awaken us and make us think logically and spiritually. Now, in the terms of the church, who would be viewed as the fathers and mothers? That would be the elders, the elder men, the elder women. They are to come alongside and awaken those in the church, believers, so that they would think logically and spiritually. That's what Peter's doing as the elder. He wrote these two epistles to stimulate believers to think logically or spiritually so that they can discern... Christ return and discern false teachers and their teachings. As Peter stated in 1 Peter 1.13, Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice in that first epistle, his exhortation was for believers to discipline their minds against loose thinking and theological laziness. Our minds must always be ready to think biblically, especially the truth about the revelation of Jesus Christ, that is, His return. The urgency of spurring us to discern biblical truth through the epistles is the growing threat of false teaching. And how Peter stimulates us to grow in biblical truth comes by way of reminder, he says. We need reminding of the truths that we have already been given because there's a tendency on our part to forget or even distort the truth. And reminders of biblical truths are there to safeguard us from our. Philippians 3.11 Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. 
And the reminder here comes via Peter's epistles. In both epistles, Peter exhorted believers, exhorted you and I, to remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Notice the phrase, the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. This refers to the Old Testament scriptures. Notice the verb there, spoken beforehand. That verb is in the perfect tense, denoting that though the Old Testament was written in the past, it is still has value in the present. Remember in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 9, Peter said that the Old Testament as the is the prophetic word made more sure. That term more sure means reliable, abiding, and in force. So when Peter says the Old Testament is more sure, he says it's more reliable than my gospel account. And it's still in force. And that's why Paul said in Corinthians and in Romans that these things, referring to the Old Testament, are written for our instruction, for our learning. We need to apply our minds to the Old Testament by studying it, believing it, and obeying it. We will not grow in godliness. We will not guard against false teaching without the Old Testament. As well, understanding the Old Testament is critical to understanding the New Testament. As I said in a previous sermon, if the New Testament is the nail, then the Old Testament is that hammer that drives home the point. He next says, not only about the word spoken beforehand, but now the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles, which is a reference to the New Testament. The commandment is specifically the holy command to repent and believe the gospel in Mark 1.15, as we saw back in 2 Peter 2.21. But generally, the commandment refers to all Christ spoke and revealed to the apostles. And in turn, the apostles collected all that Jesus said into what we call the New Testament. So that the gospels point people to Christ, bringing them to conversion. And the epistles provide believers with knowledge from the scriptures, which will in turn inform their, their theology and their ethics. And so in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter previously told us that both the Old and New Testament were necessary for growing in godliness. But here in chapter 3, we are given another necessity for the Old and New Testament. That is, not only does it enable us to grow in godliness, but it guards us against false teachers. When we avail ourselves of both sides of the Holy Writ, we will neither be stunted in our spiritual growth, nor will we fall victim... The damnable heresy. We need all Scripture. As 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all Scripture is given by what? Inspiration of God. God breathed it out. All Scripture. Not some, all. That included what? The Old Testament. And all Scripture is not only breathed out by God, but all Scripture is what? Profitable. It has a purpose. And its first purpose is what? Doctrine. Teaching, that's for what? You say you grow in godliness. Correction in righteousness, reproof, or instruction in righteousness, correction, reproof, and so on and so forth. So that what? The person of God can be 
truly furnished for all good work. And I don't know any good, any good work better than growing in godliness and guarding against false teachers. Think about this. The New Testament only makes up one-third of the entire Bible. Two-thirds of the Bible are in the Old Testament. So to ignore the Old Testament means we're ignoring two-thirds of God's revelation. You know, you, you really think you can, you can grow in godliness and you can uh, guard against false teachers with one-third of the truth? Is it possible that they might come along and speak, teach something that you say, well, it doesn't go against anything in the New Testament, but does it go against what's revealed in the Old Testament? If it does, guess what? It's a damnable heresy because all Scripture is inspired by God. A further truth to note is the phrase Lord and Savior. Peter again employs that Granville Sharp rule. You know, where you have two or more nouns joined together by the conjunction and. The first noun has the definite article, the other doesn't have it, referring to the same subject. So what we have here in that phrase, Lord and Savior, in verse 2, is that Lord, in the Greek, has the definite article, the, where Savior has no definite article. So that means that Lord and Savior is referring to the same person, and who's that person? Jesus Christ. He's both Lord and Savior. And as we've seen before, and I'll bring it forward again, the term Lord is the Greek equivalent for the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. As D. Edmund Hybert states that throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh was the self-disclosed name of the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh. In the New Testament, it is now the standard designation for Jesus Christ, which makes Jesus Christ who? Yahweh makes Him God. Spurgeon sums up the importance of knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior. He said this, You will always find that in proportion as faith grows, reverence grows. Unbelief is presumptuous, faith is always humble. The more you know of Jesus as your Savior, saving you from sin, the more you're going to recognize Him also as your Lord. No one rebels against Christ because he believes in Him. But because we believe in Him, He becomes our Lord and we learn to obey Him. That is the spirit I long to have reigning in all of our hearts. The spirit of devout, worshipful worshipful reverence towards Jesus our Lord. We need to be mindful of the Scriptures. Both the old and the new. If we're going to grow in godliness. If we're going to guard ourselves against these false teachers. We need to be mindful. We've got to discipline our minds to read and study and apply and obey the Scriptures to our lives. But along with that, we need to be mindful of the scoffers. To be mindful of the scoffers. Chapter 3, verse 3 to 7. Now, we're going to divide this part into two parts so that the first part of our second point, we'll call this A, is the skeptic's argument in verses 3 to 4. And the second part in verses 5 to 7 will be the apostles' rebuttal. So we have the skeptic's argument and the apostles' rebuttal. We need to be mindful of the scoffers. Verse 3, Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. 
following after their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Again, notice here the skeptic's argument. Because of false teachers, we need to be mindful of scriptures and mindful of scoffers. Notice that Peter begins by exhorting us to know this first of all. In other words, first of all means before anything else. This is Peter's way of alerting us to be on guard for these mockers, these scoffers. That verb know refers to having an understanding of something. That is, it is vital for us to understand that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. So when is the last days? Well, the last days is a common phrase in the Old Testament prophetic text. Isaiah 2.2 Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountains of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains. Ezekiel 38.16 It shall come about in the last days that I will bring you again my land. Hosea 3.5 Afterwards the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. By applying the Old Testament prophecies of the last day, particularly that of Joel 2, 28-32, to the events of Pentecost, Peter understood that the last days arrived with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts two seventeen, And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind. Paul understood that the revelation he received from God was being given to him in the last days. Hebrews 1-2 In these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Therefore we need to understand, folks, that the last days are not some future period. They refer to the period in which we live. The period between Christ's first and second advent. We are presently living in the last days. And Peter says, during the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. Now the word mockers there refers to those who treat something with contempt or derision. See, it's not enough to not believe in the second coming of Christ. These cats go out of their way to hold the doctrine, the teaching of the second coming of Christ in contempt and derision. And the reason they behave this way is that they are, as Peter says, following after their own lust. Here, Jude quotes Peter over in Jude 17 and 18. Jude says, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ that they were saying to you, Listen, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. That's exactly what Peter just said. That's what Jude's quoting. Now remember, Peter spent chapter 2 detailing how these false teachers are immoral and impure. They lived merely to satisfy their own selfish desires. And so what we see here is an important truth. That when somebody lives to satisfy their own lust, their own immorality, their own impurity, it will always result in a denial of sound doctrine. Okay? 
Living to satisfy one's immorality or impurity will always result in a denial of sound doctrine. Peter now reveals what these false teachers say. What are they saying? Where is the promise of his coming? Now notice the phrase, where is. That displays the skepticism in the question. In fact, the Bible records a series of where is questions to demonstrate the skepticism of those asking the question. Psalm 79.10, 115.2, Joel 2.17, and Micah 7.10 record the skepticism of the nations. Where is their God? See, it wasn't a question of, hey, we can't find him. It was, yeah, there is no God. In Jeremiah 17, verse 5, those who were opposed to Jeremiah said, Where's the word of the Lord? Apostate Israel was skeptical of God when they asked in Malachi 2.17, Where's the God of justice? So their question automatically denotes the fact that they're skeptical of the promise of His coming. Now the term promise refers to a verbal commitment or pledge to do something in the future. So the prophecies of God in Scripture are promises or verbal pledges from God. And you know what we know about God's promises? They do not fail. Joshua 21.45 Not one of the good promises which the Lord made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. Romans 4.21 Being fully assured of what God had promised, He is able also to perform. 2 Corinthians 1.20 For many are the promises of God, in Him they are yes. And the reason the promises of God do not fail is because God cannot lie. Numbers 23.19 God is not a man that He should lie. Titus 1.2 In hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised long ago. Hebrews 6.18 so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, to question where is the promise of His coming is to call God a liar. See, these false teachers were skeptical of Jesus' coming. Now the word coming, parousia, refers to His second advent, His second coming. In particular... This promise is found in Mark 13, 24-27. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, the powers that are in heaven will be shaken, then we will see the Son of Man coming, parousia, in clouds with great power and glory. Now did you catch that? There are five things there. That must precede the return of Christ, the second coming. We're not talking about the rapture. Okay? We're talking about the return of Christ. After the tribulation, sun is darkened, moon doesn't give its light, stars fall from heaven, powers of heaven will be shaken. Then we'll see the Son of Man coming. These scoffers ignored all the information about Christ's second coming and argued... It hasn't happened, so it's not going to happen. They claim 
Further, that ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Who are the fathers? The fathers is a Hebraism for the Old Testament patriarchs, namely Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Acts 3.13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. Acts 7.32, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then the verb fell asleep. The verb fell asleep is a metaphor for death. Now in scripture, this metaphor is applied only to believers to signal that our death is temporary. See, when a believer dies, our soul and spirit is absent from the body and present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And in the future, the soul and spirit of believers is going to return with Christ at the rapture, and our physical bodies will be resurrected at the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4.13-14 We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. But what about these patriarchs? What about these Old Testament believers? When will they be raised to eternal life? Their resurrection to eternal life will occur at Christ's second coming, at his return. Daniel chapter 12, 1 and 2. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress, such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. That's the tribulation. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. But Peter goes on to correlate the term fathers with the phrase, the beginning of creation. I'll read the statement again. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Now the history of the beginning of creation and the fathers, or the patriarchs, are contained in what book? The book of Genesis. Hence, the false teachers are making a claim that from Genesis forward, there is no evidence of God intervening in the affairs of humanity. You see, inerrant in such a statement is a denial of Christ's first coming. Jesus is what? Emmanuel, God in the flesh. If God did not intervene in the affairs of humanity, then Jesus was not God in the flesh. And if he was not God in the flesh, then he's not God. He's, not, he's just a what? Another sinner who died. Therefore, his death accomplished nothing. It certainly didn't atone, redeem, or justify sinners. And if Christ is not God, then he is still dead, and our faith is worthless. 1 Corinthians 15, 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith also is vain. So they did, that's, a, that's a denial right there of his first coming. And since he has not intervened yet, false teachers, scoffers claim, he will not intervene, he will not intervene in the future. Therefore, Christ is not going to return and judge. Thus, they are free to continue in their immorality and impurity. 
Now, such an idea is based upon uniformitarianism. Uniformitarianism purports that by looking at current processes and their rates of speed, we can determine how the past appeared. The problem with uniformitarianism is that it claims that today's laws and natural processes are equivalent to what they were in the past. Now, what is a natural process? That's a process such as rate of erosion or rate of radioactivity, rate, yeah, rate of radioactive decay. The problem here is this. The biblical evidence states that while the God-given laws of nature are the same today as they were then in the past, today's natural processes are not the same due to sudden global changes resulting from cataclysmic events in the past. See, if there's a cataclysmic event in the past, it's going to undermine uniformitarianism. Okay, it means that that event could have changed the natural processes. So therefore, I can go back to this event, but what's previous to this event may be different. Which brings us to the apostles' rebuttal. In verses 5 through 7. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. That by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Peter presents three rebuttals here against the skepticism of these scoffers, these false teachers. First, their argument is internally flawed. Their argument is internally flawed. Peter says that when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. Which means this. The word maintain is to be willfully determined. Okay, They're willfully determined. And escapes their notice means they forgot something important. That is, these false teachers are in their resolve to do away with a future judgment are willfully determined in their skepticism to forget a vital truth. And what is that vital truth? God created the heavens and the earth. They forgot that. Not out of ignorance. Willfully forgot that. Now, even though they believe in creation, again, they said... Since the creation, so they believe in creation. But they do not believe that God was the one who created. Peter states that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed. Nine times Genesis 1 states, God said. And that term said means to say, to think, or to command. The verbs in the justive mood meaning that God didn't merely speak it into existence, He commanded it into existence. Psalm 33 verse 9, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Psalm 148, 2 to 5, praise him all his angels. Praise him all his host. Praise him sun and moon. Praise him all stars of light. Praise him highest heaven and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. Why? For he commanded and they were created. Thus therefore God created by command or what's called divine fiat. Or ex verbum deo. 
The universe did not evolve through random mutation or natural selection. Because when God speaks, God speaks specifically and systematically. And there's nothing random in His creative work. So their first, their, their Peter's first rebuttal is that their argument is internally flawed. Peter's second rebuttal is that their argument is fatally flawed. The false teacher's claim of uniformitarianism is undermined by two cataclysmic events that changed the face of the earth. The first event was creation. The earth was formed out of water and by water. This is a reference specifically to the second and third days of creation. On the second day of creation, what did God do? He separated the water into two parts, making the skies or the atmosphere above and fixing the deep waters below the sky. On day three, God gathered or pushed back the waters so that dry land would appear. Creation disproves uniformitarianism because when God created, what did He do? He transformed a formless void into an inhabitable environment for humanity. The second event, the second cataclysmic event was the flood. The world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. God brought to bear the waters previously separated on the second day of creation, the floodgates of the sky and the fountains of the deep, for the sole purpose of destroying the very creatures He had created. The floodgates of the sky refers to a massive gathering of clouds that produced a heavy and continuous rainstorm for 40 days and nights. The fountains of the great deep refers to the breaking open of the ocean floors, releasing the reservoirs of subterranean waters, which in turn created a shifting of the earth's crust, which resulted in earthquakes, tidal waves, and tsunamis. It resulted in a worldwide volcanic eruptions which spewed smoke and ash into the atmosphere, blotting out the sun and cooling the earth. And so, guess what happened? Natural processes changed. Laws of nature didn't change, but natural processes did because there was a cataclysmic event. God intervened. Peter's third rebuttal is that their argument is a hasty generalization. It's a hasty generalization. That is... They've drawn their conclusions based on inadequate and insufficient evidence. See, they claim the world has continued on since the beginning without divine intervention, but Peter's provided two examples to the contrary. The creation and the flood. And both creation and the flood were cataclysmic events that would distort one's perspective of how past processes occurred. Furthermore, there is evidence for both a creation by divine intelligence and a worldwide flood. Unfortunately, many refuse to see the evidence because perhaps of preconceived ideas or there are some that simply won't follow the evidence to the rightful conclusion. But the truth is that just as God intervened at creation and at the flood, so God will intervene in the future. His future intervention will be similar to His previous His intervention at creation and the flood involved the heavens and the earth. And so his future intervention will include the present heavens and earth. The phrase by his word indicates how God will intervene. By his word, God created the world. By his word, he destroyed the world by water. And in the future, God will destroy the world again by his word. The only difference between these three interventions 
is that the instrument of intervention has changed. In the past, at creation and the flood, God used water. But in the future, He'll use fire. In 2 Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. See, the present heavens and earth, as Peter says, are being reserved for fire. Why? Because God promised to never again destroy the world, the heavens and the earth, by water. Genesis 9.15, I'll remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all the earth, or all flesh. Now this revelation of fiery judgment is not new. The Old Testament foretells a fiery judgment at the end. Isaiah 66, 15 and 16, Behold, the Lord will come in fire, and His chariots like the whirlwind, to render His anger with fury, His rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire, and by His sword on all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many. Zephaniah 1.18 Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And on all the earth will be devoured in the fire of His jealousy. For He will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Malachi 4.1 For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day is coming... He will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, and he will leave neither root nor branch. God's fire, he says, Peter says, has been kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Peter used a similar statement in chapter 2 and verse 9. The Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. God previously determined the fate of the ungodly. 2 Peter 2, verse 3, Their judgment from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. Jude 4, The false teachers were long beforehand marked out for their condemnation. Peter says they are kept. That is, reserved or held for judgment. And that term destruction here in our text is the same as in chapter 2 and verse 3 and refers to being eternally separated from, the lake of, or from, the, from God in the lake of fire. Therefore, on the day of judgment, the ungodly, the scoffers, the false teachers, will be resurrected and judged at the great white throne. And it will end with them being destroyed in the lake of fire. But that word destroyed doesn't mean an end. It doesn't mean annihilation. It means eternal torment in the fire of that lake. Revelation 21.8 For the cowardly and unbelieving, abominable murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers and idolaters, all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. See, my friends, we need to be mindful of the scriptures and of the scoffers. Too many believers today, they're specious instead of spiritual. That is, too many believers are quick to believe what is superficially plausible, but is truly wrong. And it's because they're not grounded in the great doctrines of Scripture. My friends, we must beware that much of false teaching is deceptively enticing because it appears to have truth. We would do well to adopt the stance of the Bereans. They received the word with great eagerness, examining Scripture daily to see whether these things were Acts 17.10.
Are you a Berean? Are you taking everything that comes down the pike and running it through the truths of Scripture? That's what you need to be doing. As well, I would challenge you to heed the words of the Apostle John in 1 John 4.1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Just because somebody goes out and claims the name of Christ doesn't make them a believer. Furthermore, we need to beware of those who teach against the biblical records of creation and the flood. And you know, the example of Scripture is clear. If we accept any other accounting for the events of creation and the flood, we're embracing skepticism. And by embracing a skeptical approach to creation and the flood, one will soon find themselves doubting and perhaps even denying other doctrines of Scripture, even the second coming of Christ. And Peter's great concern here is that such doubts and denials can open people up or expose people to immorality and impurity. Be mindful of the scoffers and be mindful of the scriptures. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you for giving us these great truths. Hard truths, but good truths, Lord. I pray for each of those who are listening that, Father God, we would be mindful of the scriptures, all scripture. That, Father, we would dig into it from Genesis through Revelation. That we would learn it. We would study it. We would heed it. We would apply it. We would obey it. So that, Lord, when the scoffers come that we need to be mindful of, we can test them to see whether they're from you. We can test their teachings to see whether it lines up with your word. And in doing so, in being mindful, Father, we'll not only grow in godliness, but we'll be guarded against false teaching. Father, I pray for each one that, Lord, you might guard them against such damnable heresies that would seek to destroy them and rob them of so many blessings that you want to pour out upon them. We pray in the matchless name of Jesus our Savior. Amen.